My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, and welcome to Our Sunday School. Glad you're able to be with us this morning. And uh, first thing you'll notice is that I am not in Hickson, Tennessee, in the uh, multi-purpose room at Stewart Heights Baptist Church. We're on vacation. So uh, we're recording this a day early, and I hope you are blessed by it. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 14, and uh, almost ready to finish up this first half of Mark chapter 14, but I have been waiting for this lesson for quite some time. So today we're looking at verses uh, 22 through 25, and uh, it goes by a lot of different names, and we'll touch on a couple of those today. But uh, first thing I want to do is ask our question that we ask each week. What is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark that we have studied so far? So what's God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? Now, this is normally where I would pause for a long time and wait for you to respond and then engage. I can't do that today. So if you will take a moment and either tell someone at the table, if you're at the Hickson campus, or just type in the comments, that'd be fantastic. And the cool thing is that today, if you have questions as we go through the lesson, I should be able to respond to them on Facebook in real time tomorrow as it's played. So uh, we'll see if I'm a little better at catching and responding to questions when I'm not actually doing that while I'm teaching. We'll see. But uh, let's go ahead and read the first half of Mark chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 14. And I'll read the first 31 verses. Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. That he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Mark chapter 14, the first half. A lot is going on. A lot is going on in this text. But today we start with verse uh, 22. And if you've got your handout, uh, one's available at OurSundaySchool.com, or there should be one available in the room. Next week's handout should be available in the room as well, as well as next week's handout on OurSundaySchool.com. So you can always study ahead, look ahead, see what uh, we might be looking at. So uh, I'll draw your attention to the question uh, toward the top of the page, are there any literary or structural observations? And I will tell you, this is likely the worst one of these I have ever written because I'm not sure how to say it theologically accurately to encompass all of what Jesus is doing here. It is so broad. It is so complex. It covers so many different ages. It covers so many different people. It covers so many different scenarios. This is a really difficult one to write. So here's this close as I could come, and we may modify it by the time we get to the end of the lesson today. So Jesus and his disciples participate in the Passover for the last time, parentheses, on earth. And if that interested you, good, because I'm intending to kind of see what is coming here. There's a lot going on in this particular text. So verse 22, as we talked about last week, this is the Passover Seder. This is the order. This is the million things that are going on. And there is a very prescripted, there's a very scripted process that is prescribed to walk through uh, now, I will tell you this, a lot has been added to the Seder since Jesus' day. A lot had been added during Jesus' day from the original Passover. If you look back at the original Passover, it was shockingly simple, but shockingly simple. It was far simpler as compared to what it is today, and it was actually simpler than it was in Jesus' day. But things are regularly being added, and we'll talk about some of those, and we'll kind of skip over some because they just aren't quite as relevant for what we're doing. So verse 22 as they were eating, and we talked about this last week, so this would have put us uh, at a certain point into the Passover. Uh, they had already begun the actual meal itself, which meant of the four cups, and we talked about the four I wills last week, of the four cups, two of them had already been dealt with, and two more were on the script, on the agenda to be done. As a reminder, those four cups, the references to them, the links back to the Old Testament come from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, the four statements that God makes about his people. He says, I will bring you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, 
I will take you. And each one of these has a lot of symbolism and significance for exactly what that means, what it's going to mean, what it did mean, all these different types of things. So uh, just want to make sure that you're aware that there's much, much, much more that could be taught about these concepts. Uh, but this is the Seder feast. This is the Passover. There's an order. Um, there's lots of different websites that you can go to that will give you descriptions. Um, a couple that I think are very helpful are JewFAQ.org. And as disrespectful as that sounds, it's actually a really, really helpful uh, website. Uh, and then HappyPassover.net. Uh, lots and lots of details at both of those about uh, what is going on. Uh, I will tell you that that for the modern Passover, step number 11 in the Passover is the dinner. So we are well into a prescribed process at this point by the time we get to verse 22. Uh, and then there is a very specific point in verse uh, 22 where Jesus does something that, sorry, I'm moving my stuff around here because I don't have my normal setup, uh, where Jesus does something that is really significant. But before we get to that, I want you to notice how intentional he is. So verse 22, as they were eating, and this is a present active participle, this takes a while. This, the Passover Seder is not a, uh, a drive-through meal. This is a multi-hour meal to prepare for. This is a multi-hour meal to enjoy. Uh, that would involve some fasting beforehand. I mean, this is a lot of stuff that's going on. So as they were eating, Jesus took. And the thing I want you to notice about all of Jesus' actions here is they're active. He is the one driving the action. He is the one doing the action. He is being very intentional about what he is doing. So Jesus takes the initiative in the Passover. So just kind of keep that in your mind as we're walking through this entire process. So as they were eating, he took bread... So this is just uh, normal bread that they would have baked probably that day or the day before. Um, so he took bread and after blessing it. Now this word blessing shows up several times in Mark's Gospels. It occurs in Mark 6.41, Mark 8.7, Mark 10.16. And these are all times when Jesus takes something and he blesses it. Uh, in Mark 11.9 and 11.10, this is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. These are others blessing him. And then we kind of bookend the blessings in Mark's gospel in 1422, the verse we're in, with Jesus' blessing again. I think there's something to the order as well, but that's for another day. Now, this word for blessing here is eulageo. Uh, this is the idea of to speak well of or to bless in a particular way. Uh, to invoke a benediction upon. If you've ever heard someone pray the words uh, from Deuteronomy, the Lord bless you and keep you, that, that is the kind of blessing that we are talking about here. Uh, this is not technically a, a blessing that you would say, as we say in the South, who's going to say the blessing over the meal. There's another Greek word that we're going to get to that actually describes that process. This is a, a benediction of uh, to speak well of. So he takes the bread, he's actively taking the bread, and after blessing it, so he's actively blessing it, he broke it, and there's an active breaking. And I want you to see how, how Jesus is leading, he is guiding, he is directing what is going on here. And this is actually part of the Seder. Like everything's going according to script up to this point. So he breaks it, and this is the same word is used in Mark 8, where Jesus breaks the bread for the multitudes, and he gave it. To them. So this, again, he gave it directly to them and said, so he's actively speaking here, 
And when you see this quotation mark, this is where Jesus goes off script. So we know this is at least the disciples' third Passover with Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of John uh, talks to us about that. And Jesus changes the order. He changes the very prescribed, very scripted, everything we know what's gonna happen. Everybody had a place, everybody had a part to play, and Jesus changes it up with these words. And he says, take. And I wanna pause on the word take here for just a second. Because this take is not a, will you please take this? The take is a, take this. This is an imperative. It's, a, it's an active imperative. It's actually a plural active imperative. Which each one of those has tremendous implications for us. So the take here is plural. And this is one of the reasons why we don't ever do communion alone. Communion is not a singular activity. Communion is a, or the, the, uh, the Eucharist is a group activity. I have specific beliefs about this and how we ought to do it and how we ought not to do it. I think they're based in the Bible, but it is at minimum a group activity. It is not a singular uh, activity. So he says, that he tells them to take, and this is an active imperative. This is a command for them to obey. And if this seems a bit pushy, that's how we were introduced to Jesus. If you flip back to Mark chapter one, go back to Mark chapter one for just a second and look at verses 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, there's a command, and believe, another command. So Jesus came onto the scene commanding. And while we like to say, and it is true, that acceptance of Jesus Christ and his finished work, his person and finished work on the cross is an invitation it is also a command. Jesus does not come asking. He comes commanding because kings don't beg. Kings order. And if this doesn't feel like the Jesus you've been introduced to, you might not have been with us the entire time that we walked through the Gospel of Mark because Jesus orders a lot in Mark. He expects people to obey. His assumption is, if you are going to be my disciple, you obey my words, which is what he actually says at one point. So he tells them, he commands them to take. And not just to take, but to take this. Because take, this is my body. Again, completely off script here. The disciples had not yet connected, although they would. And they would do this very, very well later on, theologically. They had not yet connected the events in Exodus, the first Passover, with what Jesus is doing here, with what Jesus will do later on. They had not seen the full eschatological scale of what he is going on. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb that was not only described and participated in in Exodus, but prophesied about and he is the future, he is the past, the present, and the future Lamb of God. So there is a lot going on here when Jesus says, take, this is my body. Now, I will also tell you, it is not an accident that Jesus chose bread to use here. In Matthew 6, 11, he talks about he, how he is the bread of life. Now, what we don't want to do is mix metaphors. We don't want to mix the metaphor and say, well, He's the bread of life, so I have to take this bread to have life, that, that uh, communion is part of what gives me salvation. 
Whoa, 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 whoa. Record scratch, break the fourth wall, look at the audience. Absolutely not. That is not what is going on here. That is a lot of theological gymnastics that some people in the world today believe that we would argue and say, absolutely not. This is not part of salvation. There's a lot going on here, but it's not what that is. So take, this is my body. Now the word body only shows up a few times in Mark's gospel. You should remember back to Mark 14 8. We just read it a few minutes ago. We studied it a few weeks ago when this woman broke the, the alabaster jar of pure nard and anointed Jesus. And I've talked about this a little bit, but this would have lasted for days. The scent would have lasted for days. In the upper room, they would still have been able to smell the spikenard. So when he says, take, this is my body, what has he done immediately before this? He took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it. Like there is significance in the breaking of bread and why we don't take whole loaves when we participate in communion. We participate in something that is broken to remember the broken body of Jesus Christ, right? This is what he is setting up for them. And we have heard this many, many times, but put yourself in their shoes for just a hot second. They've never heard anybody deviate from the Savior. They've never heard anybody take liberty, reinterpret, reimagine, redirect even the whole thing and make it about them. But remember, Jesus is not only the oldest one there, not just because that's his earthly age. He is the ancient of days. He is the past, present, future, all tense God. He is the one who was there at the original Passover. It's about him. And he's just helping them see that. And it's a beautiful picture of what the entire Bible is, is the entire Bible is not about where do I fit in to God's story and how can I make it about me? It is, thank you, God, that you have a plan of redemption and that you have chosen us to even engage or participate in. This is incredible, incredible work. So they redirect this entire thing. He redirects this entire thing and makes it about him because it actually is about him. I probably it's the wrong way to say that. He doesn't make it about him. He shows them it's about him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So verse 23, so that's the bread. So he's broken this, it represents his broken body. Verse 23, and Jesus took, again, this active initiative taking, uh, he took a cup. And if you look at your handout for just a second, at the top of page 471, I wanna show you the flexibility that words have, because this is a really good word that makes a lot of sense as long as you're using the right definition. So this word for cup is uh, pterion. Uh, it's a noun. Uh, first definition is a drinking vessel. So when you think about a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, a cup of whatever, like put liquid into a physical cup and you're going to drink. Yes, that is the primary definition of this word. Uh, second definition of this word is the, the contents of the cup. So if you, if you hand me that cup, well, if it's got coffee in it, you don't really want the cup, you want the coffee in the cup. So it can be indirectly about the contents of the cup, by extension, about the contents of the cup. 
And then the third would be the lot or the fate. And this is really a word we do not, this is a, a type of the definition of this word that we don't use today. I don't know the last time that you were talking about your fate or your lot in life and you used the word cup to describe that. But this was the word that Jews would use. This is the cup that God has poured for you to participate in. This is the kind of the mindset that something is prepared and this is mine to participate, to drink out of. So if you look at Mark 10, 38 and 10, 39, when Jesus talks about, we'll flip over there for just a second, uh, 1038, 1039. Uh, so this is Jesus asking James and John, love them. Uh, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So Jesus tells them, there's going to be a level of participation that you have with me. And it's actually their murder because this is, this is, this is awful. James is, I believe, stabbed to death with, or beaten to death with, I mean, it's just, these guys died horrible, horrible deaths, right? Um, so that's one definition of the word cup that Jesus is not talking about a physical cup that we're going to drink uh, water or wine out of. This is the lot in life. This is what God has assigned for Jesus. And we see that again here in uh, actually a couple of verses later in Mark chapter 14. If you go to Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He says, and Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It's not as though Jesus had a cup in his pocket that he couldn't get rid of or was tethered to him somehow. It's not what's going on. This is the cup or the lot that Jesus has been given by the Father. And we see God's, we see Jesus' obedience here um, in drinking the cup that the Father has given for him. And if you look forward to the cross, when Jesus says it is finished, he has finished the cup of wrath that the Father actually poured for him that was taking all of our sins and pouring it out on Jesus so that we have nothing left to drink. There's no wrath left for a believer. God doesn't hate you. Let that sink in. Jesus took every last drop of wrath the Father had for us. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So back to verse uh, 23 here. Jesus took a cup. The word cup here is not talking about his lot. It's talking about a physical cup that Jesus is going to drink out of and the disciples would drink out of as well. So he took a cup and when he had given thanks, now this word, this word is why some of you come from faith backgrounds that call communion the Eucharist because this prayer is the Eucharisto. This is the blessing before a meal. If you look at the definition, to say grace, to be grateful, to express gratitude for. And I will tell you, Jesus used this word. He did this thing, the Eucharisto, and he also did the eulogio back when he broke the bread for the multitudes. He had a habit of doing both, of saying grace and of blessing things. So when you hear someone say a blessing before a meal and they say, 
uh, bless this food that it may strengthen us to serve you, O God. That's, uh, that's the eulogeo. And when you hear the, we thank you, O God, for this food, that's the Eucharisto. You can actually do both in a very simple, short prayer so the food doesn't get cold. Stop praying for long times before food. We have no indication that Jesus prayed long prayers before food, right? Don't let it get cold. Anyway, back to the drink. When he had given thanks, when he had Eucharisto, he gave. So again, Jesus is the active giver here. This is not an accident. There's a reason Jesus served them. There's a reason we have people that distribute. We have someone that is the giver in our communion and the one that is the receiver. This is on purpose. This is to mimic as close as we can to what Jesus was doing here at this first communion. So he gave it to them and they all drank. They all drank. They all drank. There's a lot going on there. They were obedient in this because he told them, take, this is my body for the bread. And he told, he gave them the drink and they drank it. This is a beautiful bit of obedience that the disciples display here. Now, I want to point something out. The Greek word for drink is pino. And for those of you that drink wine, pino is a type of wine, right? And uh, that word doesn't imply that what they were drinking here was wine. There's some verses later on in this text that absolutely imply what they were drinking here is wine. There we go. I'm just going to say it. There we go. All right, verse 24. Uh, I will also tell you that verses 24 and 25 are where if they hadn't already realized something was different, that was the head nod to something is different. Verses 24 and 25 are the, what are you doing? You're blowing our minds. You can't do this to the Passover level of change that he's about to do. So verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. Yes, do you remember the original Passover? It was a very bloody thing. The lamb had to die. The blood had to be applied to the door, the door frame. It was a very bloody process. Sin always requires a sacrifice of blood. Our sin requires a sacrifice of blood. It can either be my sacrifice of myself, where I spend eternity paying off the debt that I owe to God in hell, or it could be repentance of my sin and turning toward the person and finished work of Jesus Christ and what he did in a moment. Because something eternal has to die. Either the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, dies once and for all, or me and you have to eternally die 
for our sin, but something eternal has to die for my sin. So Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. And covenants were the basis of all Jewish life, all Jewish life. The entire Old Testament is referred to as the Old Covenants, where testament means. It means covenant. This is an agreement between two parties. It's an agreement between God and man, between God specifically and the people of Israel, his chosen people. So when Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant, wait, is this something new? Yes. Yes, it is. Jesus is saying here a lot. Jesus is saying the old covenant has been fulfilled in me. And we are starting, we being God and man, are starting a new thing through my shed blood. And this is beautiful. This is the reason we don't keep all the Old Testament laws. This is the reason none of the Old Testament applies to the New Testament believer. Because Jesus has completed the Old Covenant. It is wrapped up in him. And there is a new covenant relationship that we get to experience a relationship with God in through the gospel, connected to Christ, so that we can then be children of God. It's actually not about who our earthly father is anymore, whether we are the children of God or God's chosen people. It is about, are we brothers with Christ? sisters with Christ? Is the Father, God the Father, our Father or not? Whole different setup. This is amazing. Great stuff. And the disciples' heads would have been exploding off of their necks at this point. So this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So this poured out is singular. It's done once. And it's a present passive participle. So the passive means it's being done to him, his blood is being poured out. And this word for most literally is translated over many. Because remember, something has to die. Blood has to be shed for sin to be atoned for, for there to be a reckoning, for there to be a covering, for there to be a sacrifice something that is sufficient for the debt that is owed to God for sinning against him. So this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Verse 25, he's going to keep going. Now he's going to do something that not only doesn't follow the script, it almost abandons the script. Were it not for verse 26, um, you would think, well, they'd be like, what? You, mm, no, you can't do that. Because verse 26, they says they sung a hymn, and this would have been the one of the last things that you would do in the Passover Seder, but there's something else that they've got to do because they just drank the third cup. And I told you there's four cups. So the fourth cup would be poured here. What does Jesus say? Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again. Now you've heard me say many times, when you, when you use a negative in Greek, it means no. When you use a double negative, it is really seriously no. I don't remember a situation like this before in Mark's gospel. There might be one, but I couldn't remember. The words here are, ooh, 3756, may, 3361, pino, ukete. 
three of those four words mean no. It's not, not, drink, not. Well, how passionate of a no does this have to be for Jesus to basically say no three times? He's not doing this again. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, wine, right? Um, until that day. It's a very specific day that is going to happen in the future when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And if you read the rest of your New Testament, you will not find where Jesus drinks a cup of wine again. With one possible exception. Flip over to Revelation chapter 19. I do this with fear and trembling. Revelation chapter 19. And look at uh, the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 19. This is the rejoicing in heaven. There's amazing songs that are being sung. Uh, there is uh, all sorts of things that are just roaring voices. Um, verse 9, Revelation 9, or sorry, Revelation 19, verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it doesn't say technically Passover, but in a Jewish meal, there would have been wine that would have been poured. Marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the only time that we could think of, that we could really find and say, where's the fourth cup going to be drunk? Because Jesus doesn't drink it with his disciples here at this last Passover, this last supper. He saves it. And I think he's saving it to drink it with you and me. At some day in the future, when all things have been wrapped up, when we are with him, both bodily and spiritually with him. Imagine that. The next time Jesus drinks the cup, this cup, do you remember what the fourth cup was? The fourth cup is I will take you. And this is where he takes his bride the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not called a marriage supper for no reason. It's called a marriage supper because there's a marriage. There's a bride and a groom, and the bride is the church. Hello, we're in the church. We're the bride of Christ. There's actually going to be a marriage, and there will never be a divorce. And this, this, my friends, is good news. This is grand and glorious news because Jesus didn't finish the Passover meal with his disciples. He's not going to finish it until he can finish it with all of his disciples. How cool is that? He's waiting 
on us to be with him. Now, what would the disciples who were in the room here have heard? The disciples in the room would have heard, I'm not finishing the Passover, which wasn't allowed. <laughs> you didn't get to do that. You didn't get to break the rules. He did, however, sing a hymn, which we are not going to do right now. Um, I'm not going to ruin my vacation or your Sunday morning uh, trying to sing a hymn. But uh, yes, thank you for laughing at that, Dave Barber. Uh, but in verse 26, they did sing him and went out to the Mount of Olives. And if you want to talk about things start happening quickly after that, things start happening quickly after that. So they didn't drink this fourth cup. The Passover wasn't finished. The closest we can find is in Revelation 19 about the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what's the point? Well, hopefully this has come through today. But application number one, the Passover is about Jesus, <laughs> right? And if you want to replace the word Passover with communion or Eucharist or Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or whatever word you want to use, that's great. But the original Passover was about Jesus. The New Testament Passover was about Jesus. The communion that we participate in now is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Both pointing back to what he did, pointing to what he did on the cross, pointing forward to what he's going to do, finishing it with us one day, it's about Jesus. So what do we do with that? Number one, remember Jesus. <laughs> it's all about him. Right? So application number one, the Passover is about Jesus. What do we do with that? Remember Jesus. Uh, application number two, the bread is Jesus's body. The bread is Jesus's body. So what do we do? We give thanks, right? We give thanks that Christ willingly, actively gave himself to actively submit to the Father's will to be broken. That's tough. Application number three, I bet you can guess what this one is. The wine is Jesus' blood. The wine is Jesus' blood. So what do we do with that? We give thanks. We give thanks that the blood that was shed for us on the cross. It's Jesus' active work. He received Every last drop of the cup of redemption, the cup of wrath poured out onto him from the Father. There's no more left for us. And then number four, the Seder, and the word is S-E-D-E-R. It's the word I'm saying. The Seder is not finished. We are living in the what many theologians have called the already not yet. He's already accomplished the work. The work is finished, but we are not yet at the table enjoying the fourth cup with him. So the Seder is not finished. So what do we do? I would say look up. Today could be the day that the next age begins. And I pray it is. I pray that the next time that we see each other is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. How cool would that be? <laughs> that would be awesome. So I'll finish with this. Let's go back to the first page of your handout, and we'll talk about the insufficiency of my sentence that is highlighted at the top of that handout. Jesus' disciples participate in the Passover. Yes, but they didn't finish it. <laughs> For the last time on earth, 
mostly-ish. Unless the marriage supper of the lambs on earth, which I don't think it is. I think it's in heaven. It's a challenging sentence to write, but it looks forward to the future. And I hope you are looking forward to the future too. I hope you know him. And if you don't, don't skip past Mark 1, 14 and 15. Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So with that, that's our lesson this morning. Uh, if you have prayer requests, I would love for you to put those in. If you're in the room, uh, make sure your name's at the bottom of the uh, weekly update and update any prayer requests. Make those on the page. Uh, Dave will get those to me. Thank you, Dave, for that. Appreciate it. Uh, and if you're online, then feel free to just type in the comments uh, any prayer requests that you have. We would love to pray for those. Uh, so once you have prayed as a group at your tables, uh, you are dismissed to go and to worship this one who is completely okay with letting us understand that it is, in fact, all about him. And I hope you never get over that. that he's an amazing Savior. Thanks, guys. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.